And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Ryan Buchanan was a, a guy who grew up in a religious family. It wasn't uncommon for the walls of his home to be displayed with uh, religious items. So one Christmas, he thought of the perfect gift for his parents. So he watched eagerly as his parents tore away the paper from that flat, rectangular-shaped gift. And he watched and videoed, actually, as his mom smiled with gratitude as she saw what this gift was. It was a framed picture of Jesus, complete with the bearded face, the ancient Near East robe. You could tell from the way she looked at it, she just could not wait to get this thing on her wall to help her remember him, cherish him. The only problem, and the reason why this was not actually a serious gift at all from her son, is that this image of who she thought was Jesus was actually a picture of Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> In this case, the lesson for the second commandment seems to be very simple. That is, we are not to create, display images of Jesus in worship because we could end up venerating Ewan McGregor. You know, last week, in the first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, we saw this command that we shall have no other gods before the one true God. And that commandment has brought us to a very important question. And that question is, having come to know the one who is the Lord over all and the one true God, and seeing that he alone is worthy of our life's devotion and worship, the question is, well, does it matter how we worship him? Does it matter how we treat him? Does it matter how we approach him? Is the one true God pleased with any form of worship so long as it's well-meaning? Does he care how he's worshipped by his people? And in the second commandment, we have a clear answer. How we worship does, in fact, matter just as much as whom we worship. The Lord actually cares about the way his people approach him. So in this passage, we're going to cover verses 4 through 6 today. I think we see a couple things really clearly and simply. I gave you an outline there on your handout so you can follow along with me today. The first thing we see is a, a rule for worship. And the next thing we see are some reasons for that rule. So let's start off with the rule for worship. Look there in verse 4 again. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. 
Commandment one, we must not worship false gods. Commandment number two, we must not worship God falsely. Commandment one seems to deal with the object of our worship. Commandment two deals with the manner of our worship, how we seek to make much of this one true God. The very existence of the second commandment reminds us that the way uh, that we may not worship God in any way that we like, but in the way that he has prescribed. So we must not only worship the right God, we must worship the right God in the right way. So we as God's people, we need to know that it's actually possible to attempt to worship God, worship the right God in the wrong way. And because of this, the Lord gives us a command, a rule. And what is that rule? You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And this comes as a bit of a, kind of a bit out of the blue for people like us in a culture like ours, but not if we're following along in the narrative of the book of Exodus. So think about it. So where had these people, Israel, where had they just come from? Egypt. And did the people of Egypt worship the one true God? No, very clearly they did not. They worshiped a whole host of gods. And how do they do this? Well, they, they worship their gods by making images of things, everything in nature. So their gods, whom they could not see, corresponded to things that they could see in nature. So things in heaven above, things that on the earth below, things under, uh, in the waters under the earth. And so the way that they worshipped, the way that they brought their gods close and manipulated and got them to work for their good, was to create images, to create a likeness of them and to bow down to them, to serve them. To make a carved image was to bring God near, to commune with it, to give it spiritual, spiritual efficacy, to, to represent a God on earth. So this was the normal way, the default way of worshiping in a fallen world. And what's clear here in Exodus 20 is that this is emphatically not to be true of God's people. So against every religious instinct they had ever known, as those who had been groomed in the religion of the Egyptians, as God's liberated people, the people of Israel were not to make images to help them worship the Lord their God. They were not to make them, they were not to bow down to them, they were not to order their lives around man-made images. Flying in the face of every other known religion, every other religious practice, carved, created images were not to be a part of the lives of the people who belonged to the one true God. And again, while this command it may sound archaic to us, can you imagine just how disorienting this would be to the people of Israel? So all of a sudden, everything they knew about how to worship God was being overturned. They were not to make, to have physical man-made representations of God to aid them in their worship. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above, in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Well, what if they wanted to create a, a hand-carved bird, right, to, to worship Yahweh? After all, God himself said that he was the eagle who brought them out of the land of Egypt, who swooped down and brought, him, brought them to himself. The command says no. Well, what if they wanted to honor Yahweh by by molding like a golden bull, right? They could bow down to it as if they're bowing to the unrivaled strong one who used his strength to bring them out of Egypt. 
Definitely not, right? Remember the incident in the golden calf, the, the golden bull? We'll see that in Exodus 32 coming up. The rule is very simple, albeit disorienting for God's people. Idols are no longer a part of your worship. You do not worship the creator of all things by picturing him as one of the things he created. So when God's people gather for worship, they do not look to, they do not wait for the bringing in of an object that would serve to represent God among them. This was a new way to worship for God's people. As I've heard another pastor say, so God had gotten Israel out of Egypt. And in many ways, that was the easy part, right? Now he enters into this new season of getting Egypt out of Israel. And where does he start? Well, it starts with a new way to worship, to belong to God, now meant to have a prescribed way of worshiping God. And I, and I wonder, before we move on, I wonder, do you have a category for the fact that God himself, and not we ourselves, has the final say in how we worship him? So it's possible that we, like the people of Israel, have some religious instincts, some ways of worshiping God that we've inherited without a lot of thought. So it could be worth asking, who determines what is the right way for you to approach the Lord? Who prescribes what we're to do when we gather here on a Sunday for a service? Who has the final say? Is it a pastor? Is it a worship leader? Is it a creative arts director? No, it's the Lord. He has certain prescribed and certain prohibited means of worshiping him. And one thing we must avoid is using these man-made physical representations of him as objects of reverence, aids to our worship. Now this brings up a legitimate question, and that is, well, why? Why is this the case? And for the rest of our time, I simply want to work through several reasons for this prescribed way of worship. So first we had a rule of worship, and now we have reasons for that rule. So that's number two, the reasons for the rule. Look at verse five. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The first thing we see is that we cannot make and revere and honor images and aid to our worship of the one true God because of who he is. Because of who he is. So recall from last week, we said that these commandments, if we pay close attention to these ten commandments, they'll teach us both about ourselves and they'll teach us about the character, the nature of the one true God. And this is the second commandment, and it does this same thing. It reminds us that, number one there, that the Lord is distinct. The Lord is distinct. Israel, who had spent hundreds of years, a dozen generations, conceiving of worship as one thing, was now given a new distinct way of worshiping God. Why? Because this God, to whom they now belonged, is distinct. As we saw last week, Israel is not worshiping a God. They are worshiping the Lord, Yahweh, a fundamentally different, exclusive, unique God. And what the Bible shows us is that an utterly unique God calls for an equally unique way of worshiping him, of making much of him, of honoring him. 
Yahweh, we see, what we see in Scripture is that Yahweh demands to be worshipped as he is. And what he is, is unlike anything in all creation. Nothing in heaven above or earth below or in the waters below the earth adequately represents the God who is. Yahweh is not a God who can be copied or imagined or replicated. The Lord is unique in that he is the God who simply is. And I think what the Bible is saying is that the way that you worship the God who simply is, is not by imagining him to be something that he created. It's not, to, it's not hard to see why that would actually be an insult to his very being. No, the way you worship the God who is, is, is not to bring him near by an image, but to simply believe by faith that he already is near. The point is that as God's worshiping people, you need nothing to represent God's presence among you because God's presence is already there. This is what it means for him to be truly God, set apart from everything else that claims to be God. The Lord is distinct. I think this leads to a second truth about the Lord we see in this commandment, and that is that the Lord is spiritual. You know, this point is so obvious that it's easy to miss. You know, we should not worship images. We should not make images of God to help us worship him because we don't actually know what God looks like. The one true God is spirit, which means we are not to give him a man-made body. And interestingly, this is Moses' very point when he looks back on this occasion, speaking in the book of Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is looking back on the events of the Exodus and about and at the events of the giving of the law at Sinai. And this is how he comments on it. Look there, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse, starting verse 11. I'm going to start in verse 11. I think that starts in 12. It says, and you came near, it says, and stood at the foot of the mountain, right? We've seen this in Exodus 19 and 20. While the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom, verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. Verse 15. Therefore, watch yourself carefully. Why? Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making carved images for yourself in the form of any figure. Then he goes on to list exactly what the commandment prohibits there in Exodus 20. That is things in heaven, on earth below, on the waters, under the earth. What's Moses' simple point in highlighting the fact that the people didn't see what God looked like? You can't create an image of something that you haven't seen. And you shouldn't. So as a people who have never seen the form of God who is spirit... You are not to create images of him to help you worship him. We cannot use, make physical images to aid our worship because whatever we'd come up with on our own would be our own creation. God, the one true God, is spirit. We have not actually seen him. We cannot make, we cannot use physical images to aid our worship because of the Lord who is. He's distinct, he's spirit. Thirdly, he's jealous. And this is the explicit point made there by our text, isn't it? Listen to those words again from verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, 
the Lord your God, the jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. We are not to worship God using man-made images. We are not to worship idols because the Lord our God is a jealous God. Now, we might hear this and we might get a little stumped at this point because we, as people, we only really have one conception of jealousy, right? What is it? Well, jealousy is envy, it's covetousness, it's sin. To be jealous, we think, is to kind of sinfully crave something that someone else has. And this is bad. So jealousy is kind of desire when it's gone off the rails. Jealousy, it seems to stem from disordered love. But what the Bible makes clear to us is that there's another way to conceive of jealousy. There's a right way to be jealous. And that is when jealousy is part of true love. So think about it. You, you can't actually, you can't truly love without a right kind of jealousy, can you? Right? So a, a husband who doesn't care about his wife's faithfulness is not truly loving her, is he? So there's a there's a proper, there's a righteous jealousy that actually flows from true love and which seeks to protect that which is most beloved. And if this is what jealousy means, and if God properly loves his glory, if he properly loves his people, then God has to be jealous. Jealousy is, it's God properly maintaining the exclusivity of his worship, of his love. This is what makes God actually exclusively the one true God. False gods, those who are not truly God, can afford not to be jealous because they're not the real thing. But if there's a God who is truly God, he is a jealous God because allowing the worship of anything other than himself would be himself idolatrous. Charles Spurgeon draws out this distinction, I think, so well. Listen to this quote. He says, false gods patiently endure the existence of other false gods. Dagon can stand with Bel and Bel with Ashtaroth. How should stone and wood and silver be moved to indignation? But because God is the only living and true God, Dagon must fall before his ark. Bel must be broken and Ashtaroth must be consumed with fire. Thus saith the Lord, ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, cut down their groves. The idols he shall utterly abolish. My brethren, do you not... Marvel, do you marvel at this? I felt it in my own soul while meditating upon this matter in intense sympathy with God. He says, what must be the Lord's indignation against infatuated rebels when they so far despise him as to set up a leek or an onion or a beetle or a frog preferring to worship the fruit of their own gardens or the vermin of their muddy rivers rather than acknowledge the God in whose hand their breath is and whose are all their ways. Oh, it is a marvel that God hath not dashed the world to pieces with thunderbolts when we recollect that even to this day millions of men have changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like, made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. God hath long-suffering towards men, and he patiently endureth this madness of rebellion. But oh, what patience must it be which can restrain the fury of his jealousy? For he is a jealous God and brooks no rival. 
the Lord is patient. He is patient to draw people to him in repentance. Do you see the kindness of God in this? In these warnings? Because the Lord will not stand his glory being divided. To worship other things alongside God is not worship. It's hatred. And the Lord will deal justly with those who hate him. That's what he says there. The end of verse 5, he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I don't think we need to misunderstand this. I don't think it's a promise to punish those offspring who are innocent in themselves. It's a promise that God's judgment is against all who prove their hatred of him through their idols, father, son, grandchildren alike. If you brook rivals, if you take on other gods beside the one true God, You are not worshiping the one true God. To worship something other than or alongside the one true God is to hate the one true God. Divided devotion to the one true God is not devotion. And not only that, the reason we have this warning is because divided devotion, it's spiritual suicide, isn't it? We read these words and we often, maybe we, maybe our initial response or reaction is like, oh, God's a little severe, isn't he? Somewhere along the way, we've come to view the warnings of God as cruel. What is a warning? What is, if, if you call out to somebody who's standing on the train tracks and you see a train coming, what is it to call out to them? It's mercy, isn't it? It's love. We have warnings all over the Bible. We have a warning here to watch out for idolatry because we cannot worship, worship idols and the one true God. Maybe you're hearing this and and it all feels a bit outdated, right? So maybe it feels a little obsolete, maybe irrelevant. After all, it's been a while since you've crafted an idol or a medal to pray towards. And I can understand that, but what we've got to do is we've got to understand what an idol is. So when you go to the New Testament, and Paul is kind of pulling the string on some implications of this, this is what he says, Colossians 3, verse 5. These are some instructions to those who now belong to Christ. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul says that, all right, Christian, it may just be that your idols are not outside of you, but inside of you. Things that are still earthly in you. In you. These idols are the things that you covet. The things that you insist upon. The things that you hold up right there. Right up there beside the one true God. as things that are necessary for life. If you don't have them, you might as well not live. So, what Paul is saying is that if we can tune our ear to our covetousness, things that we insist on having, we'll find some idols. So the question is, are you you nurturing, are you creating, have you created any idols? Maybe not outside of you, but maybe right here, inside of you. I would encourage you, ask the Lord this week. Make that a point of application. Ask the Lord, are there any idols remaining in me? And I'll just tell you, idols are sneaky, okay? 
You don't know they're there. And then, boom, they're right there. And seeing them is painful. Maybe you've crafted your image. Maybe the image you worship beside the Lord your God is yourself. Maybe it's what people think of you. It's an easy idol, the hardest to put to death, as Paul says. Maybe that idol is just one, one particular person's opinion of you. Maybe a mom or dad, popular person, someone close to you, someone not close to you. We must be on guard against idols because of who God is. He's distinct, he's spirit, and he is jealous. In a similar vein, we cannot, we make and use images to aid our worship because of what an image is. This is letter B, somewhere there on your handout. It's down there somewhere. Letter B, because of what an image is. At the risk of oversimplification, a created image is not the uncreated God. An image is not God. And since images are not God, we must not worship or venerate or honor or idolize images, even, maybe even especially supposed images of God. Man-made, handheld, physical images of God do not add to God's glory. They obscure it. They do not reveal God's uniqueness. They conceal it. So we may be tempted to look at supposed religious images of God to behold his glory, but his glory is exactly what such images can never show us. You see that? Phil Riken, I think, hits this on the head with this quote from his commentary. He says, this was the problem with idolatry all along. It created a false image of God that was inadequate to his deity and unworthy of his majesty. God is infinite and invisible. He is omnipotent and omnipresent. He is a living spirit. Therefore, to carve him into a piece of wood or stone is to deny his attributes, the essential characteristics of his divine being. An idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. In short, it makes him the exact opposite of what he actually is. Thus, the whole idea of idolatry rests on the absurdity of human beings trying to make their own image of God. An idol is not the truth, but a lie. It is a God who cannot see, know, act, love, or serve. J.I. Packer adds on, he says, God is not the sort of person that we are. Amen, praise God. His wisdom, his aims, his scale of values, his mode of procedure differ so vastly from our own that we cannot possibly guess our way to them by intuition or infer them by analogy or notion of, or our notion of ideal manhood. And I think Packer's words I think they help expand our realm of application when it comes to the second commandment, don't they? Because while we may be less tempted to create physical images of God to aid our worship, I guess it's a little more likely for us to construct images of God which are imagined. So think about it. It's it's not uncommon for us to say or maybe to hear others say, you know, I like to think of God as you fill in the blank. Or, I don't like to think of God as a judge or a jealous groom. Or, to me, 
you know, to me, God is like whatever it might be. And the reality is that, you know, this flies in the face of our modern times. But the truth of the Bible and of this command is that we are not free to think of or imagine God as we'd personally like to. Putting our imagined conceptions of God over beside the actual revealed conceptions of God in Scripture is not honoring to him. And it will not serve us. Packer goes on, he says, To follow the imagination of one's heart in the realm of theology is the way to remain ignorant of God. And if we struggle with this or kind of, you know, push back against it, maybe it's that we haven't, we haven't yet understood the severity of the temptation towards idolatry that the Lord is trying to get ahead of in these commandments. The commands here, they're so blunt and clear because the beginnings of idolatry are so subtle and subversive. <laughs> I mean, think about it. I mean, to, just to fast forward ahead, right? God's people are violating the second commandment while God is giving the second commandment. Idolatry is dangerous. We become like what we worship. That's, what we, that's why we want to worship something we can see. What we need to understand is that having images, the second commandment, can lead to breaking the first commandment. That is, putting other gods before the one true God. Think of what's happened over the centuries in the Roman Catholic Church, right? So my family, we recently had the chance to visit inside a Roman Catholic Church building. It was fascinating taking the family in there because the difference in that and our place of gathering was just, you know, it was unmistakable. So everywhere we look, there's just objects to touch and candles to light, statues of saints towards which to pray, paintings to examine, water for cleansing, altar to bow down to, crucifixes to meditate on and behold. So there we sat in this, in this building entirely dedicated to housing images of God for the purpose of fostering worship of the one true God who cannot be imaged. And then, and then there's us, right? So here we are. Pretty plain building, pretty bare walls, no picture, no statues, no candles. You know, we don't even come to worship, and in our worship, we don't even have kind of the modern contemporary equivalent of those things, right? So we have no stylized projections on the screen, no kind of ethereal backgrounds to the lyrics to help us see the ambiance of the Almighty. We don't have this setting of the mood for our worship together, do we? And why not? Because we are not called to conjure up God's presence among us. He is already here. This is what he's promised. And we are not called to rouse our affections through stirring images of what we might imagine the heavenly presence to be like. We do not revere, we do not honor man-made images, physical or imagined, to aid our worship because of what an image is. A man-made image, real or imagined, is not God. And this ties, I think, to a third reason why. And I think this reason actually clarifies the second reason why we don't use these things. We cannot use images to aid our worship. See, let her see there, because of what worship is. Because of what worship is. So as we said earlier, what we're being shown here is that a unique God calls for unique worship. And what we find in this narrative of Exodus and the rest of the Bible is this, and this is a very important point, is that on this earth, until he comes, the worship of God 
is to be more audible than visual. So the truth that we see all throughout the Bible is that as God's people in this fallen world, we worship according to the word of God, not according to images of God. So think back to the passage we read earlier from Deuteronomy. Moses' commentary on what's happening right here in Exodus. When relating to God's people the instructions and the warnings for worship, did you notice his emphasis? Listen again, Deuteronomy 4.12. Moses says, then, reminder people, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only what? A voice. The way God revealed himself at Mount Sinai was not through a visible image, but through an audible word. And Moses says that this matters. The Lord's desire for his people in worship is is not so much for us to look, but for us to listen. Neil Postman, maybe you've read his, uh, maybe you read his famous book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He made a fascinating fascinating observation in his own study of the second commandment. He said this. He said, the God of the Jews was to exist in the word and through the word, an unprecedented conception. Iconography thus became blasphemy so that a new type of God could enter a culture. People like ourselves who are in the process of converting their culture from word-centered to image-centered might profit by reflecting on this mosaic injunction. All right, so that was like 1986. I think it's fair to say that we've made the transition, right? So we, we are no longer a word-based culture. We are an image-based culture. But to the point, we must resist the urge to become an image-based church. Sinai, Moses says, brought no image to the eyes. It brought a voice to the ears. And same with the voice of God that we have now here in our laps. You hold the very word of God revealed to you by his spirit in the Bible. To worship the one true God, to worship in this church, is to listen to his voice. In the Christian faith, the way we see is with our ears. Sight comes through sound. Belief comes through what? Hearing. And hearing comes from what? The word of God. Listen, in Christianity, seeing with your eyes is the reward of faith, not the means of faith. You believe the word now, he gives you sight later. That's coming. So listen, we do not incorporate man-made idols in our worship because the climax of worship here and now is not setting our physical eyes on God using physical representations of him. The sight, the, the height of worship is setting the eyes of our faith on God, setting the eyes of our faith on his gospel through his written word. So Christian worship, worship that is distinctly Christian, has nothing to do with bowing down or kneeling before or kissing or venerating objects or images. Christian worship is the response of faith to the voice of God, which means the entire goal of our gatherings that we have here as a church family is to magnify the name of the Lord our God by listening to his voice and responding to him. That's why we have reinvented nothing when it comes to the way we worship when we gather together as a church. Listen, if you come to our gatherings 
and you have no appetite to hear from God, the God in heaven through his written word, you will be bored, guaranteed, because we have nothing else to give. God's word is all we've got. But when we gather together, New Testament tells us, there are certain things we should do, and all of them have to do with getting God's word into our ears, into our minds, into our hearts. What we need every single week after hearing after hearing the catechesis of this culture for six straight days, what we need is to hear from God through his word. So listen, we, when we plan services, you may have noticed what we plan to do is to read the word and to sing the truth of the word and to pray according to the word and to preach the word. The only seeing of the word that we do When we do see and touch something, it's only those things which the Lord himself has commanded us to do explicitly. That is the waters of baptism that we see and touch and the elements of the Lord's Supper that he's given us to remember Christ. Believe me, there are a million more things we could do in a worship service, right? (laughs) Right? It's not difficult to come up with something more entertaining to do in a worship gathering. That would be easy. But our plans and our desires are regulated by the fact that the Bible tells us when we gather for worship, it must be not to amuse God and not to amuse one another, but to hear from him, to be built up in faith. I remember one time, she's since gone to be with the Lord, but one time Jill and I were visiting her grandmother, and uh, she had just come uh, home from church service, and I said, how was church? Did you have fun? And she looked at me and she said, No, I didn't have fun. It was church. (laughs) If you're looking for a church, right, visiting with us, if you're on the hunt for a church, listen, whether it's this one or another one, if you're looking for a place for your kids, for your youth, please, I just encourage you, prioritize what the Bible prioritizes. Not that you would be amused, but that you would be built up in the faith. And the church would hold out to you the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way you do that is through the word. We don't invent anything here in the church. We hold fast to what's been given to us. This leads to a a fourth and final reason why we don't have to go the path of using man-made images and worshiping the Lord. And that is because of who Jesus is. Because of who Jesus is. Listen, the truth The truth is is that when the Lord wants to be seen and when the Lord wants to be known and revealed and represented physically on the earth, he is the one who will make sure that it happens. God and God alone is the one who will send the image and likeness of himself when it's needed. Think about that. He's, He's actually already done this in creation, hasn't he? He created man and woman, how? In his image. It's amazing, isn't it? But when those images broke and were marred, what did the Lord do then? Well, he has sent a new image. The Bible says at exactly the right time, God in heaven sent forth his son who was born to a woman. And this is Jesus, son of God. And how does the New Testament speak of Jesus? Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
Chapter 2 of Colossians 4. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 2 Corinthians 4 speaks of Christ, the image of God. The introduction to the Gospel of John, John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Hebrews 1.3 He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, and what? The exact imprint of His nature. Why don't we need man-made images of God? Why don't, why don't I need to imagine what God could or would or kind of might be like? Because God himself has already sent his very likeness, his very image to us. And the perfect image, the perfect representation of God on earth is Christ Jesus. So, if you're not supposed to handle images and idols, well, how do you know if you're worshiping the one true God? How am I supposed to know? Well, the question is, do you look by faith? to the Lord Jesus as the one who has fully revealed to us the final truth about the nature of God, about the grace of God? Do you look to Christ by faith in what you've read about Christ and what you've heard about Christ according to his word? Do you see all God's purposes centering upon and ending on Jesus? Do you see your righteousness in the perfection of Jesus, the only one who perfectly fulfilled this law that's being given here at Sinai? What about your atonement, the way your sins are forgiven? Do you see your atonement in the dying Jesus, the only one who had perfect blood to spill to pay the price for your sins? Do you see your very life in the living Jesus, the one who has defeated death, who resurrected, who now lives at the right hand of the Father, taking constant notice of you, praying for you even now? Do you see your eternal hope in Jesus, who will one day return, and when he does, who will make you like himself, a glorified image, finally. If you're doing this, if you're looking to Christ by faith, then you don't need anything else. Don't look to anything else. We are not to worship idols. We're not to use man-made images, craft imaginations about who God is or what he might do if he were to reveal himself in physical form, because he already has. It's true, we will become like what we worship. And that is never truer for those who worship the one true glorified God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. We worship him by faith. Listen, I know you haven't seen God, Christian. I know you long to, but it's coming. It's coming. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Ah, oh, it's one of my favorite verses. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Is that, your, is that your testimony? Oh, you haven't. I haven't seen him yet, but I love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Oh, look at the future that we have, beholding the one true image of God, by faith. You know, it's in this way, through this divine image, that the Lord will prove true those final words of Exodus 20, verse 6. Look back there, Exodus 20. He says, I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
What does the Lord have in store for all those who forsake idols and set their hope fully on the, the one who for now is unseen image of God? He has steadfast love. He has mercy. Notice how his mercy outshines his judgment in this passage. Judgment for three or four generations. Mercy for a thousand. That is for eternity. This is what he's given us and promised us and secured for us in Christ. His steadfast love is better than life and it will not run out. And this is the truth that we remember and participate in in this great supper of the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Lord has, by his grace, given us a way to come and participate by faith, to taste and see this faith that we have in the God whom we cannot see right now. That's what we come to celebrate now in this great Lord's Supper. Let's pray and we'll celebrate. God, we do worship you as the distinct, spiritual, unseen, jealous, merciful God who is. God, we give you all praise. God, we pray that you would give us grace to turn from all others, that our faith, faith and faithfulness would not be divided, but that we would wholly rest our faith, that we would hide only in the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Pray this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.